So it may seem obvious, but there's a general principle about the physical world that goes like this. The more powerful something is, usually, the more dangerous. The more powerful it is, the more dangerous. Look, if I need some dirt work done in my yard, there's only so many ways I can injure myself with a little shovel. I could find a way. But when I really need earth moved, I got to get a backhoe. And I'm not going to get on that. I'm no way am I trained. There's no telling. Uh, The house would be leveled. The kids would be gone. Okay, right? Because the more dangerous something is, uh, the more powerful, the more dangerous. But but I need that power, right? Uh, 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 Kids, right? We We don't toss them the keys to a car when they're kids they start out on a bike right because it's got less power it's less dangerous and then we move them up to a golf cart and then here i've noticed when you're about 12 then you drive (laughs) you get the point the more powerful something is the more dangerous a campfire can be controlled a nuclear reactor needs a whole team uh, a safety around it what's my point what am i trying to say We, we don't want these powerful things gone from our life we just we gotta, we know in, instinctively we got to take them seriously or they could injure us. But, and that's the point, but we don't want them gone. We actually want that power. We just want it controlled and really more, I should say, properly understood so that it can be leveraged for good. You know, I joked about my kids getting the keys to a car, but that's just it. One day, I absolutely want them to have that power. So when they say right now, what do they need to know about cars? At this age, they're dangerous. Stay away. That's it. That's all you get. But that's not really true. I want them. Perhaps the most poignant example of all, am I the only dad who's had a little girl when very young say, dads, have you ever had this happen? She was watching some show or she was seeing uh, some older woman who had a boyfriend. And she looked up at me and said, (laughs) boys are gross I'm never going to have a boyfriend and dads what did you say that's right you said amen you you stick with me kiddo but even that illustrates the point I don't mean that I know that one day if God gives her the gift of marriage I'm going to celebrate with that and I want that But, but I also know that it's like when something that powerful as a little girl's tender heart it's it these things are they're danger attached right so it's not that i don't want that today these things are worth it it's worth it but it's dangerous that's exactly the situation we're in today did you see on the way in are you prepared for the lord's supper we are going to observe today an ordinance that means an order a command it's something that our lord jesus invited us to do told us to do and it has great power with it, of course, means we need to acknowledge the great seriousness. It's called the Lord's Supper. It has power this morning to draw you close to God. It has power to nourish your faith. It has so much power that if we treat it lightly this morning, it's spiritually dangerous and even physically dangerous. Just like in the physical world, we don't need to be scared of it. I don't want us to say, well, then, no thanks. No, no, no. 
No, we don't need to be scared of it. We need that power. We just need to acknowledge that it's serious. It's like it comes, it, it comes with a warning label. And the warning label is 1 Corinthians 11. I invite you to turn there. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 11. Let me skip quickly to the end of the, the passage we're going to look at. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven. Here's the warning sticker that the Lord's Supper comes with. Verse 27 says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Verse 28, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread or drink of the cup. Here's why. Verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. What? Paul's writing the church at Corinth and he's telling some this explains not in every case but for some of you because you've made such a mess of the Lord's Supper you are under the chastising judgment of God and it has literally made you physically sick because you've been sick in the spiritual God has literally brought sickness upon you and some of you have died prematurely you were gonna live longer and God took you home you died prematurely why because of the way you uh, uh, made a disaster of the Lord's Supper got my attention (laughs) so we've got to get uh, this right we've got to understand okay so so let's do this let's look at what was going on in Corinth and then let's make sure that we apply it as best we can to us today and then in this way properly prepare our hearts to observe the Lord's Supper okay let's start in verse 17 I told you in the intro to uh, my series, When God Came to Sin City. Sin City, a nickname for Corinth, and God came, and people were getting saved. They had no idea what was going on, and really, things were not going well. Paul gets this letter. He turns his attention in these chapters to the way the church, when they gathered together. And there's a series of things, but he turns his attention to the Lord's Supper. In the following instructions, he starts in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Previously, he had, he had actually commended them on a couple things they were doing well. But not this. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. That's just good pastoral wisdom. You don't believe everything you hear. And you always know there's some overstatement and stuff. But I believe it in part. Enough to be troublesome, verse 19. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Interpreters don't really know what to do with this verse. One of two choices. Uh, Some commentators, good commentators, um, uh, they think he's being sarcastic. Uh, That he's using irony. In other words, oh, of course there needs to be factions, right? I mean, Roman society was based on a pecking order, right? And so these are the high and mighty and the social elites. These are, these are the haves and these are the have-nots. And so he's being sarcastic. He says, well, of course you'd want that. So you'd need, you, would, you would know who was in your social class to hang out with, right? There must be factions. That's the only way you can determine who the haves and have-nots. Could be sarcastic, could be. But I wonder if he's not. I wonder if he's not being ironic. And the fact of the matter is, uh, times of strife, factions, think about it times of strife and division they do tend to show people's true colors don't they isn't that true when there's division when there's strife 
It's testing. And over time, you start to see who comes out of that testing. And you start to see what they're made of. They pass the test. It seems like over and over, there's certain people, every time there's been strife in the life of a church or there's been division, over and over, there's folks who always take the high road. And then there's folks that spread discord. And they always seem, whenever there's drama, they seem to be right in the middle of it. What's happening? Well, Paul's point is you see folks' true colors during times of church controversy. Listen to this quote from Eric Reed. I read this actually this week as I was preparing this in the Alabama Baptist. Eric Reed, listen to this quote. In all my years of pastoring, I have learned this lesson. A person's spiritual maturity is not truly visible until they don't get their way. Then you see the real person. It's true in my own life. Perhaps you've experienced that same thing. So Paul's pretty fired up about this. And he says in verse 20, so when you come together, let's talk about the Lord's Supper. You keep calling it the Lord's Supper. Whatever y'all doing when you come to take the body and the the bread and the cup, (laughs) it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. You can call it what you want, but Jesus wants no part of this. And then he explains why. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Or in the original Greek, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or or, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you with this? No, I will not. Now, we today separate, you'll notice, we separate. A lot of you, you you had a breakfast before you came, you know, you you had a biscuit, there was a reception afterward. We separate our big meal from this symbol, the little piece of bread, you know, the little wafer and the little cup, right? They did the same thing. They had a little piece of bread and a cup that they would set apart, and that would be the, the symbol, the Lord's Supper. But they would do it around what they called a love feast, agape feast and there was very little love being shown during the quote-unquote love feast and as a part of this they would take the lord's supper made a mockery of it so they didn't have church buildings and so you see what would happen they would meet in people's homes think about it too it's not like they got a day off it's not like the roman empire was like you know what we we believe jesus of nazareth the jew rose from the dead on a sunday let's make that the lord's day and give everybody the day off work no So what would happen? So you worked all day. So the early church, they met in people's homes. You would have to have somebody wealthy enough to have a big, you know, Roman estate to to be able to hold everybody. And you met at nighttime after work. Well, you start to see what happened. First of all, homes were built to separate the haves and the have-nots. In the Roman home, you had the triclivium, three couches. Each one could seat three, nine. And then you put the atrium, you put the overflow. So that every time you had a dinner party, it was a great honor to be in the triclivium. How many of you grew up, you remember the day at Thanksgiving you got to graduate from the kids' table? Right? Well, that's a tender memory, and that's not dividing, uh, 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 and that's sweet. But imagine you never outgrew that. Imagine your whole life you never got to go to the adult table. See? It's a way of excluding. That's how the home was built in the overflow. So now you come together, and now you, you've got the, this, this church, and, and Paul's saying, you've got a chance. You've got a chance now to be radically different from the world. You've got a chance to really do life differently and to show forth the glory of God. Because have you ever heard the expression, the foot of the cross is level ground? It's not like, well, you're a big sinner, and you're less of a sinner, and you're a good saint, so God wants. No, 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 no. Level. 
And that's why when you come to the Lord's table, all are on the same footing. It's all by grace. Well, they didn't do that. And so they would have this big meal. And you can imagine, those that were wealthy had their servants cook a delicious meal all day long. And right about 5 o'clock, or they called it V, in the afternoon, they would be ready to eat. And they were starting to get a little hungry. And you know how it is. People, when they get hangry, you know, and they would have their feast, and they would say, well, you know, a lot of folks can't get off work. A lot of the folks were very poor. They can't adjust their schedule. They're, they're, they're working hard. They're, they're working third shift. They're, you know, they're, they're doing all they can. And, and a lot of the early Christians were slaves. A slave is not going to be able to tell his uh, uh, master, oh, you know what, I, I, I got a church meeting. I got to go. And they start early. And if I'm late, I won't. And so what happens is by the time they show up, they're utterly humiliated. There's just a couple crumbs left. You've had this sumptuous feast. You're stuffed, overstuffed, and you even, you even got drunk as if, all the, as if the gluttony's not enough. Go ahead, get drunk by the time your brothers and sisters, quote-unquote brothers and sisters, come in. They roll in starving to death, and it only further humiliates them. They're not part, really. They're not really part, are they? They're second-class Christians. Paul, these, these questions drive home their guilt. Oh, you guys don't have your own homes to feast in? You can't get enough of that when you're in your own home? Or, or do, you, do you literally despise the church? And you can almost hear him, no, no. He says, well, then why are you trying to humiliate the have-nots? Oh, and by the way, we learn in 1 Corinthians 7, as if all that's not bad enough, there's a famine right now in Corinth. Right? That's the whole deal with the special offering, and that, that's why his advice to the unmarried, stay unmarried. This, this, this is bad times. There's a food shortage. So here we are in the middle of this famine. And you won't share with these brothers and sisters. Jesus gave up his life, and you won't share your chicken strips. So that's where we're at. That's what we've come to. It's furious. Now, we think, because this is so outrageous, we think, how could this happen? I think if we interviewed those Corinthian Christians that were guilty of this, I think what they would say is this. Look. I mean, I see, what, I see what Paul's saying, and yeah, we, we probably went a little overboard. But you got to understand, we were just being friendly. We are hanging out with each other. I mean, our homes are built that way. What could we do? We have space limitations. We are just being friendly with each other. That right there. That right there. When churches say, we're a friendly church, you need to know every church says that. Every church. Because friendly means... You have friends here, and you're friendly. Who are you, friend, who are you friendly to? You and I are always friendly to our friends. It's in the Word. So friendly means you, you love each other, and you're coming together, right? But Christ does not call us to be just friendly toward one another. Christ calls us to hospitable. Hospitality is very different than friendliness. Friendliness means we love on each other. Hospitality means we're always available for one more, to the stranger, to the outsider. We're welcoming to somebody who doesn't yet have any friends here. See the difference? Friendly means, you know, I speak every week to this person. Hospitable means there's always space for one more. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna do, it is difficult. You do the hard work of what you're trying to do when you're hospitable is you're imagining in advance what somebody who's new here would need to know and want to know. And that's why you put a name tag on. Even though you think, well, I've been here 80 years, you know. What's that song, If You Don't Know Me By Now? You know, right? Right? But you do it, why? Because every week there's somebody here who's here for the first time. That's why these uh, that give the welcome, 
they, they turn your attention to the screen, and will you fill out this information in text in church? And some of you have heard that over and over and over, and you think, why do we do that again and again? And yeah, nobody would ever say that, you know, where, but why? Because you've got to understand, every single Sunday when I get up to preach, I imagine, and I know it's true, every single Sunday, there's, there's some people that are going to come in here, you've been faithfully coming, you love the Lord, you love every, you're hospitable, oh, it's awesome. But I believe every single week there's somebody who last night looked up at heaven and said, God, if you're here, I can't hear you. And if you exist, you sure don't feel real to me. But I'll tell you what, tomorrow morning I'll give you one last chance, God. And I'll go down to that church across from the courthouse. And if you speak to me, I'll give you one last chance. Otherwise, we're done. It's, that's it. It's over. And do you know that's the spiritual condition of somebody who comes every single Sunday. And when you come, it's not just a greeting. You're representing to, to, to somebody, you're representing divine love. See? And so when they walk away, they go, that church cared about me. And they, they stayed with me, and they didn't just say, bye, find a Sunday school class, I guess. I don't know, you might get lost. <laughs> they stayed with me. They walked with me. They cared for me. Don't you see? That's hospitality. Every Christian community has to think carefully about this. This isn't an easy one to apply for several reasons. We, we do it different. We, you literally have your own homes to eat and drink in, and, and here you, you, we come together, and it's a symbol. I, I get it. But we've just got to always think about that we carry out our worship practices that in no way disadvantage or show insensitivity to its members. And subgroups, which can become potentially cliques, and sometimes for not bad reasons, they just begin to love each other and hang out. That's good. You want fellowship. But always hospitable, always ready to receive someone new. So there's the problem. Let's get to the solution. How does Paul begin solving the problem? The same way he addresses every problem in 1 Corinthians. He doesn't yell at him. He doesn't beat him up. He takes him by the hand and leads him right to the grace of Jesus. He says, you can almost hear him say it in verse 23. He brings him right back to where it all began. You can almost hear him saying, oh, I see the problem. I see the problem. Y'all forgot how you got what you got, so you fought. That's what's going on here. Y'all forgot where this whole thing started. So he brings him back to the gospel. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, <laughs> took bread. I think it's interesting of all the ways Paul could have described the first Lord's Supper. He describes it as the night he was betrayed. What's he doing? He's showing the Corinthians, even the first time they did this, Judas was at the table, but he wasn't with Jesus. He's saying it's possible to be around the things of God and not know God at all. He's reminding him, this is not really technically a new problem. Right there. Judas was there. Anyway, back to the verse. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He didn't beat him up. He gave him the gospel. It's not so much that they, let me say it this way. It's not so much that they treated each other badly. Therefore, they didn't get the Lord's Supper right. Paul's saying, you didn't get the Lord's Supper right. You didn't get the gospel completely straight in your head. You've received Christ as Savior, but you still, the gospel hasn't gone deep down into your heart. And that's why you're treating other people badly. So let's get it right. I want to close by figuring out how to best apply it to a modern church. Here we are, 2021, in some ways, years removed. But the warning sticker has not been lifted 
And so I thought, let's get clear about what we're about to do as we uh, partake of the Lord's Supper. It's no fewer than five things. And I know some of you are thinking, five things? We've got to actually take the Lord's Supper today. Uh, but the, uh, we're just going to touch them and move on. But this is the way I wanted to close with our applying our hearts to these truths. Remembering, the Lord's Supper's remembering. If you want to jot these down, each time I give a point, I'll repeat all previous points. I hear a sigh of relief from the note takers. Remembering, sealing, don't worry if you don't get them all, I'll repeat them over and over. Remembering, sealing, proclaiming, examining, communing. Let's do them one at a time. Remembering. Just write down one at a time. Don't worry. Remembering. He took bread, verse 24, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So it's not just a, it's not just a memory like, well, this is a memorial of our dead Savior Jesus. No, in remembrance, as in, as in actively calling to mind his sacrifice for us in our salvation and acknowledging he is in the room he is spiritually present now when he says this is my body there uh, is a doctrine of transubstantiation which teaches falsely i believe that this bread we eat and this cup we drink literally become the body and bread that cannot be true because when it was first instituted his body and blood were right there at the table and he points to the bread he goes this is my body so it can't be, it can't be transubstantiation because when he started it, his body was right there. What it means is this is a symbol. And isn't it a perfect symbol? Look, what does it say? Look at the words carefully. He took the bread. He gave thanks. Another translation, he blessed the bread. He broke the bread. Gave the bread. Got it? Everybody watch that? Took it, blessed it, broke it, gave it. Now you tell me, is that not exactly what Jesus Christ did with a body? He was eternal with God the Father. I should say is eternal with God the Father. And yet, became a little baby born in a manger in Bethlehem. He took a body. And y'all, did he not bless that body? Did he not show us what a human body could do completely yielded to God? Did he not love and serve and care? Oh, he blessed that body. But then, at Calvary's cross, what happened? That body was broken. And after it was broken, it wasn't just a martyr's death. It was broken for you and for me. He broke it and what? Gave it. Gave it away. It was his life for yours. And he picked you. And that's how bread works. As long as bread is a big old loaf, it can't nourish me. It has to be broken and received. Then I can be nourished. So it's a remembrance of what he did. Second, I told you we'll move quick. Remembering. Number two, sealing. What do I mean by sealing? In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Ah, there it is, covenant. This ordinance, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are signs that seal the covenant. Every time God makes a covenant with his people, covenant means a vow, a promise. God says, this is what I'm going to do henceforth and forever. Every time he does, he gives a sign. Remember his promise to Noah? I'll never again flood the earth in my wrath. What was the sign that sealed his covenant with Noah? The rainbow. See? He made a, a covenant with 
uh, Abraham. What was the sign that sealed it? Circumcision. He made a covenant with Moses. What were the signs that sealed it? The, the law, the sacrifices, and the Sabbath. He made a covenant with David. And what was the sign? That the throne. On the throne, there will always be a ruler from the tribe of Judah. There will be a Davidic ruler, henceforth forevermore. And of course, in Messiah Jesus, from the tribe of Judah, there is one on the throne forevermore. See, there's a sign, a seal, a covenant. But you say, but even if you don't know your Bible history, you understand signing and sealing a covenant. If you've ever been to a wedding, they take vows one to another. Do you, Joe Groom, take you, Jane Bride, to be your lawfully wedded wife, to have and to hold, forsaking all others? Oh, it's wonderful. And I always ask them, do you hereby pledge your love and loyalty? And they say those two little words. They look at each other. They look at me. They're so nervous. And they go, I do. They made these vows. And right after the vows, what do I say? And now, in many marriage cultures, what do they do? And now we're going to seal these vows. That's what I mean by sealing. We're going to seal this covenant with a ring. That's it. Now, is the sign the same thing as the thing? No, it's a symbol. If I take my wedding ring off, I don't, my marriage vows to Jackie don't end when it off or on, right? It's, it, 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 it's not the thing, but it seals the thing. And that's why you'd say, well, yeah, no, it's not the real thing, but um, is it important? Well, let me ask you. If a group of Christian businessmen went out on an out-of-town trip and they said, hey, guys, tonight, let's all take our wedding rings off and go out on the town, how many of your wives would be pleased by this? Exactly none. That's right. You know, some people have stuff inscribed on the inside of their ring. I asked a jeweler one time what's the best thing he ever put in the middle, and he said the funniest thing was put that back on. Now look, we are familiar with the idea of making a covenant and then sealing it. And we have talked about the covenant that uh, Christians make at their marriage. We've talked about Noah and Abraham and Moses and David. But none of those covenants seem to do it. None of those covenants seem to be what God wanted in the beginning for Adam and Eve and in the Garden of Eden, this, this, this incredible world, the whole world is good, but the whole world wasn't yet garden. And so he put them in the garden in the middle of Eden. He put them in this garden, and he, and he was going to have them expand so that the whole world was garden, growing and cultivated and beautiful. Oh, And so Jeremiah the prophet, God gives him a word for the future. Can you imagine, Jeremiah, the people are in exile. It looks like all hope is lost. And Jeremiah looks out into the future because God gave him the words and he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with Judah. And it won't be like the old covenant I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand. I brought them out of Egypt. No, 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 no. It's not going to be like that. I'm going to put my law within them. I'm going to write it on their hearts. They'll be my God and I'll be their people. They're all going to know me. I'll forgive their iniquity. I'll remember their sins no more. And everybody read that verse in Jeremiah. It's Jeremiah 31. And everybody reads Jeremiah 31 of the Old Testament. They're going, when is this going to happen? And when's this going to happen? Then God is silent, and then a brand new star is lit in the east, and a little baby cries in a manger in Bethlehem. And that brave little boy grows up, and on the night he was betrayed, he says, Jeremiah 31 is now fulfilled right here in front of you. Here's the new covenant. It's here. So the new covenant's here, and he's coming again. That means we're in this already, not yet. That leads to the next one proclaiming, remembering, sealing, 
proclaiming. Look at number three, proclaiming. See, I told you I'd repeat the points for you. Four, remembering, sealing, proclaiming. There's a proclamation element to this. Four, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There is a proclaiming element to all this. Let me say this. Um, You proclaim the Lord in the preaching of his word. So when we gather every Sunday around the word, you, you get the proclamation of the Lord. So in a way, I mean, in the word, really, the Bible, it's just a bunch of symbols. That's all these words are. But there's power when the Lord anoints the preaching of his word, proclamation of word. And so you, you, you get that proclamation. But there's a sense in which when we take the bread and drink the cup, there's proclamation. Robert Bruce, uh, oh, long, long ago, Scottish theologian said it this way. You don't get a better Christ in the Lord's Supper than you get in the preaching of God's word. You don't get a better Christ but you might get the same Christ better. Why? Because some of you are visual learners. The Lord's Supper is truth you can touch. It's truth you can taste. And, 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 and that's why we don't do this as some secret cultic practice off in a dark room. We do it in full view of the community and we invite lost people. Lost people, those that do not yet know Jesus. You're not yet a Christian. You should not take the Lord's Supper today. But you should watch. And you should think about what's happening. Because it is a proclaimed sermon with the body and the blood. You're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And that means there's the proclaiming element that one day it is coming one day i love that until he comes all right remembering sealing proclaiming and fourth examining examining remembering sealing proclaiming examining and these are the verses i read earlier whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the lord well, let a person examine himself, then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. We've got to talk about this unworthy manner. This is not about the character of the worshiper, but the conduct of the worship. Listen clearly. If you interpret this verse to mean, whoever takes the Lord's Supper and is unworthy is going to come under all this judgment. Exactly none of us will take the Lord's Supper. This is not a question of, well, there are some who are worthy and there are some who are unworthy. What did I say last week? All a Christian is is a rescued sinner. That's all we got. So let's establish that all we have in here is a bunch of unworthy sinners, but let's also establish that there is one who is worthy, and he has given his life for yours, and if it's his table, then he can invite whomever he wants. And he invites unworthy sinners and makes them worthy in his grace, his love. See? Got it? So let's establish that. Because if, if, if this is about your unworthiness, well, I sinned this week. Better let the, better skip it. Well, when would you ever be worthy enough? This is his table. And besides, what's the flip side? Describe for me a Sunday when you would be. How obnoxious would you be then? <laughs> I'm going to take two. <laughs> I was super worthy. Does everybody see how ridiculous this is? There's no boasting. There's no bragging. We were rescued sinners. Okay? 
What's the unworthy manner? The unworthy manner would be like Judas. You have no real intention of repentance. You have no real desire to follow him. I often think the most helpful way to put it is this way. Um, if, you, if, you, if you're broken over your sin, you have a repentant heart, you're broken over your sin, take, eat, drink. If you fully intend to sin, don't. That's an unworthy manner. I mean, here the Corinthians had no intention of changing their behavior, and they were trampling all over the poor and the needy. They had all this animosity toward other divisions in the church. That's the unworthy manner. Does that make sense? Uh, I go back. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson preached an hour-long uh, a sermon on the Lord's Supper, and it's great. You can find it on YouTube. It's really insightful. And uh, he, he's Scottish himself, so he quotes all these old Scottish theologians, and so it's great. Uh, John Rabbi Duncan, mid-19th century Scottish pastor. Uh, uh, Sinclair Ferguson tells a story about uh, he was eccentric, to say the least, John Rabbi Duncan. And um, the way they took it in the old Scottish tradition, they actually served it table by table. So can you imagine? You would come in as a little group, say 10 or 12 of you. You'd sit around the table. The pastor would preside, and he would give a little mini teaching on the Lord's Supper. And then there would be a time of examination, and you would eat and drink. They would leave, and the next group of 10 or 12. There'd be a little mini sermon. You'd examine it. Can you imagine? So John Rabbi Duncan is uh, doing this, and um, there's one woman who's just in tears, tears, and tears and during the time of examination. And so when the, uh, the bread goes by, when the, when the cup comes by, um, she hesitates and then refuses. Tears streaming down her face. Sobbing, passes it on over her unworthiness, over her brokenness. Passes it on. And then, and this just, you got to understand, this wasn't done. I know we still have some formality in worship, but can you imagine, you know, mid-19th century Scottish, you're around the table. John Rabbi Duncan stands up, takes the cup, walks over, puts it in front of the woman, and says, ah, drink, woman, it's for sinners. He's absolutely right. Who do you think this supper is for? It's for rescued sinners. That's what it means when it says, let those, you know, don't drink in an un, don't eat and drink in an unworthy manner. Why? Without discerning the body, meaning without being aware that Christ is here among us spiritually, and without discerning, in the case of Corinth, hello, the body of Christ is being trampled on in the way you're treating the poor as you're having this Lord's Supper. Well, if you judged yourself, verse 31, if you would do this, if you would examine yourself, you would not be judged. And then, of course, even God's judgment is tempered by his mercy. Look, when we're judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Ah, see, loving discipline from God is a mercy. If you get sick, it's ultimately a mercy if it gets your attention. If God calls some of the body home early, it gets everybody's attention. Paul even later says, I've got other directions for you, but those can wait. This is life or death. So remembering, sealing, proclaiming, examining, and finally, communing. After you've drawn near to God in the Lord's Supper, let me just ask you. Sometimes it's, it's easier to just ask if people understand what you mean than to try to preach it. I think this is one of those times. Have you ever been in a church service and after you took the Lord's Supper, you couldn't explain it, but the people all around you in this room, you loved them just a little bit more. Has that ever happened to you? 
You can't explain it, but you just feel a little bit closer. It's like normally I, I shake their hand. I just really like to hug them, you know? I just, I, I can't help it. I'm, I'm drawn together. But doesn't that make sense? It's the Lord's body. I don't want to make too much of this. We're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. I don't want to overstate this. Alistair Begg said something, and I thought, oh, I better study that before I say it to the church. And now here I go. I've already talked myself into it. But he says, in a way, all the gathered saints, I mean, there's people gathering all around the world, partaking of the Lord's table, and and there's a sense in which we're communing with them. And those who have gone on to be with Jesus are now with him. And Alistair Begg said, this is as close as I'll be to my mama and daddy who are in heaven is when I take the Lord's Supper. That struck me. I'll have to think more about that. Don't ask me about that. Ask Alistair Beck. But it touched my heart. I I think I understand a little bit of what he means because I taste it here on this side of glory. This closeness, this communing. the, The phrase come together is used something like seven or nine times in this passage. When you come together, when you come together, when you come together, when you come together. Isn't it true? One of the atrocities of the COVID-19 pandemic, we couldn't come together like we wanted to, right? Coming together, communing. Okay. So then, my brothers, when you come together, there it is, to eat. Wait for one another. Such simple advice. Just wait till everybody has. If anyone's hungry, you gotta love the Apostle Paul. After all this theology, he's like, just have a snack. If you're hangry, do something about it. Eat at home, you know? Oh, no, we mustn't eat at home. It's you know, all legalistic. No! I often told people, the most spiritual thing some of you can do is take a nap. <laughs> so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I'll give directions when I come. All right, the Lord's Supper can only truly be called the Lord's Supper when those who participate do so with an attitude and actions toward others that are consistent with the self-giving attitudes and actions of our Lord Jesus.